As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. I've got to say, I think my guest today has the best Twitter handle out there. Black as in revolution. Our teacher, Annie, welcome to... Finally, finally, I've got you on the Malcolm <laughs> Effect. That's a real question. Thank you for coming on to the Malcolm <laughs> Effect. How are you? Wagwan? I'm good, thanks. I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm really, really well. Thank you for joining me. I've had so many guests on, and I think maybe you might be the hardest to get on the show. But we yeah. move. <laughs> <laughs> but we move, but we move. Okay. Again, to give some context, I came across Annie Clubhouse, like I've met so many other amazing people. And she was in these rooms just killing, slaying these capitalists, slaying all these people. I'm like, who is this girl who is this woman killing it and then lo and behold six months down the line we met up and we chilled out so i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad i've got you here to this point i consider i respect annie's scholarship a lot so i'm really really like it's an honor for me to have her on the show finally so thank you for joining me i'm gonna go straight into it i know you're good on your feet i know we didn't discuss this before (laughs) but (laughs) i know you're good on your feet so i'm gonna throw in a curveball it's not the topic of our conversation today however Someone added me and I thought, oh, I can't bother to get into this. So let me just bring someone who probably have a better answer than I will. Someone will say to me, as black people, or, you know, what is a response to Marx was racist, specifically an anti-black racist. So we can't take from him. I mean, it's kind of a difficult one, right? Because, well, it's not difficult to answer. It's just a difficult one because, you know, where it comes from. But if you think about the black radical tradition, there are so many examples mm-hmm. of people grappling with exactly the same question. You mm-hmm. know, Kwame Ture answers this question. He says, well, Marxism or the tools of Marxism are not something that we can say Marx invented, right? Mm-hmm. You can only observe and record Marx could not have invented socialism. Mm-hmm. Huey Newton gets asked, well, Marx was a racist. Why should black people listen to Marx? And he says, I don't care if Marx is a racist. That's irrelevant (laughs) to the question of whether or not the tools he provides us are useful for helping us assess and understand the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah. And so I think when it comes to Marxism, people often take one of two readings from it. There's Mm -hmm. one which is deeply flawed, which says, well, Marx is this panacea of history. He gives us a history of all things in all times and in all places, right? A history of the whole world and predictions for how the world should be. And we should take Marx at his conclusions. And our job is to bring Marx's vision into into being, right? Yeah. A more shrewd analysis, a more useful analysis of what Marx is doing is Marx is identifying a way in which the bourgeois revolutions bring into being in the world a set of promises that capitalism is never able to fulfill, right? Mm. And so what he gives us is not a blueprint for how the world will be when communism comes about. What he gives us is some tools for uncovering how capitalism becomes durable by mystifying our conditions. Mm. 
So when people talk about being a Marxist, especially in the black radical tradition, they're not saying, I love Marx, this old, dead white guy, Jewish Mm -hmm. guy. What they're saying is, I find it useful, these tools of dialectical thinking, of historical materialism for understanding the historic position and condition of black people, Mm. right? When people make this argument about Marxism being racist, what they do is erase the huge contribution that black and brown people across the global South and in the imperial core made to how we ought to understand Marxism in the 20th century. The 20th mm-hmm. century brought about transformations Marx could never have imagined, right? Yep. And the people grappling with that question, essentially the question of imperialism, were black and brown people. That's why I call myself a black Marxist. I hope Ooh. that makes sense. No, no, no. That You just spat. That's what I, This is why I had you on the show. That's why I had to bring you on. That was like, that, oh, that was what we needed. And I think, ironically, when you think about you know, Marx never really anticipated for the revolution to take place in the in the global south, which yeah. it did. And then more of it's happened in the global south than it happened in the industrialized, um, advanced places in the imperial court. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. I'm going to use that. Um, so when we're talking about understanding blackness and you're talking, you just mentioned in the tools in which Marxism gives us, particularly, and then you call yourself a black Marxist. So the question mm-hmm. I'll ask you then is, why would you call yourself, why is it important that you add black to when you say black to Marxist? Yeah, so, uh, you know, in the in the 20th century, many people in the global south who understood themselves as Marxists called themselves Marxist-Leninists. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, because I came up in a, a country with a particular tradition of Marxism, <laughs> in the UK. I know it. You're saying Trotskyist, isn't it? In the Trotskyist. <laughs> and I came to this realization returning to Lenin why it was that so many people found Lenin such an, a liberating addition to Marx, right? Because mm-hmm. there's something that Lenin theorizes that Marx does not yet have access to, which is the advent of imperialism. Imperialism, mm. the highest stage of capitalism, which is a key a key text in terms of understanding why it is that all these revolutions spark up in the global South, right? Mm -hmm. And all of that is to say that what I'm doing when I call myself specifically a Black Marxist is I'm I'm situating myself within a tradition which understands firstly the role of racialization in class formation and therefore Mm -hmm. the the essential role that an understanding of race plays in any crudely Marxist analysis. You know, I'm mm-hmm. class first, but I understand that class cannot be understood without race. Yeah. And secondly, oh, I guess you are class first. I'm class first. The problem is loads of people say they're class first, but they don't want to talk about race. How is that an understanding of class? What okay. form of class formation is not always already a racialized, racialized. Yep. you know, experience, right? Yeah. And then to situate myself within that tradition, but also to situate myself within a tradition of anti-imperialism. And so what I'm drawing on is firstly, this analysis of the specific role of race in the imperial core, as well as the role of internationalism and solidarity that that bound together these movements in the global South with the, you know, the people like the Panthers in the global North as well. Yeah. So, okay. So then why are you not race first then? Why am I not race first? Yeah. Um, I mean, my heroes would tell me that race is a mystification. The problem Mm. is not racism. The problem is race itself, right? And so what I'm trying to kind of get at is an understanding which 
allows us to speak of these categories of racialization mm-hmm. without reifying them as like natural things mm-hmm. and like reproducing the very basis of our domination. And so a lot of my research and my PhD that I'm about to start focuses on how our understandings even of the categories of race that we take as given today change in so, so rapidly in really short space of time. Mm-hmm. So that's why I don't really see myself as a race first Marxist. I don't know what a race first Marxist would look like. I think that the experience of race is the binding together of a, a material process of, as I will argue in my PhD in terms of blackness, <laughs> proletarianization, as well as like the psychic effect which gets focused on a lot today, but I'm kind of trying to ground it. And I would say that maybe in a different time, I wouldn't call myself a black Marxist, but I think, I think there's a specific responsibility today yes. to remind everyone that this tradition exists and this tradition is here and that these crit- criticisms of, and of the limitations of certain articulations of Marxism come from within the Marxist tradition. Mm. You know, so many of our heroes are being robbed of their Marxism, being robbed of their political analysis and their material analysis to serve a kind of cultural nationalist version of black politics, of black radical politics. So that's kind of, it's an intervention into this moment as well to call myself a black Marxist. See, you said so, there's so much there that I need to unpack. (laughs) No, and respond to. (laughs) My brain is just like, there's so many lights going off in my brain right now as you were speaking. Okay, so first things first. When I moved along towards this journey, and my listeners will attest to that, will hear how far I've come in a short space of time because <laughs> I was frustrated in the discussions in which, you know, the mainstream discourse in which centers around talking speaks about race and racism. Mm. We know where it goes. It's in, it's solely in the realm of diversity, inclusion, representation, and then lived experience. <laughs> and <laughs> I say that because that word really rubs me up the wrong way, but I feel bad for saying that because I don't want to be sound like an asshole to people because people's lived experience is very important to them and should be honoured. But while I always say that that should be re- relegated to the realm of therapy or relegated to like community care, but not as political organising or political strategizing. So my question to you then is, why is it important that when we're speaking about forms of dispossession or forms of marginalization? It has to be rooted in material, not the psychoanalytic. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a thread, I think it was last year on Fanon's birthday, about this category of lived experience. Mm-hmm. And it always kind of, it's really sad because this is something that's been robbed <laughs> from okay. us, right? This category of lived experience. Today, lived experience means like something Vibes. I've experienced, right? Which is weird, yeah. right? Because then it's like, mm-hmm. what's the oppositional category is it like dead experience I don't know (laughs) what Fanon is getting at when he talks about lived experience and Simone de Beauvoir does the same thing Mm -hmm. is they're saying the way that we experience things is mediated by the psychic realm right Mm -hmm. so to invoke lived experience as a basis for political organizing is itself already like a fallacy right because the idea is that lived experience does not simply represent the materiality of what we experience but also how we interpret that based on the social conditions that we find ourselves in, right? So Mm. I not only experience things which blacken me as a black person in this society, but I also experience Mm. the world as a, like as a black person and therefore that mediates my analysis of the world, right? Yeah. And so it's actually a really helpful frame for demystifying to say, well, you experience the world as this, but that's a mystification. 
your lived oh. experience is a mystification, right? And we need to uncover what is the kernel that it's trying to obscure. And Fanon makes this argument just so eloquently in so many places um, where he says, you know, we essentially experience the world as black in order not to experience the world as dispossessed, to not yeah. experience the world as dominated. The same way white people experience the world as white in order, working class white people experience the world as white in order not to understand that their conditions are one of fundamental exploitation, right? Mm. Wow. And that's what lived experience does because that mm. brings to the forefront in your mind a certain category which allows you to think yourself equal with your dominators, right? Blackness today allows us to think ourselves equal with the black bourgeoisie and we understand their wealth is our wealth and it's not our wealth, right? Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to push back on that first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yep. then I think that's why the material analysis is so important. We live in a world which now focuses so much on the cultural realm. Yep. We understand we're like kind of trying to protect this like nebulous thing called black culture which is actually most instances actually working class culture, but that's a separate question. But we also live in a world where like the presentation of our language is more important than the content of our actions and the Mm. actual like reality of things. So I always say to people, you know, if you're in the bottom two quintile socioeconomically in the U S and you're white, you're more likely to be shot and killed by police than if you're in the top two socioeconomic quintiles and black. Right. Yeah. What does that tell us? Yes, there is a blackening experience and it's racialized. Of course, Mm -hmm. police violence is racialized. It's a mode of dealing with surplus populations and black populations, especially since the end of slavery in the US have been understood as a surplus population. They're there to create the conditions for a constantly revolving workforce, which is why so many of them live in unemployment, conditions of unemployment, right? Yep. But it's also the case that this thing called wealth, like this experience is not a universal experience for black people. So when people take like someone being shot in the street, a black man being shot and killed in the street or a black person being shot and killed in the street and say, well, as a consequence of that, what we need is the advancement of people who've already been accepted by the institution into boardrooms. Yeah. That's black bourgeois class struggle. They're cannibalizing our struggles mm-hmm. to advance themselves materially into a position where they can exploit us further. That's what white people have always done. That's the category of whiteness, right? <laughs> you know, That's yeah. what whiteness functions to do. It allows them to cannibalize the experiences of white working class people. You know, today they say, well, white working class people are really suffering. We need to focus on whiteness in schools and stop talking about CRT. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we always have to have a material analysis to ward against the distortion of the essential aims of a revolutionary, black revolutionary politic. A black revolutionary politic is not simply about the emancipation of black people, but it's an understanding that the emancipation of black people can only be done in the context of the emancipation of humankind. That emancipation requires a specific analysis of the conditions in which we find ourselves so that we can understand where the opportunities for struggle are. In the Black Panthers, during the formation of the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago, if they had held to this analysis that people want to hold to today, that police brutality is exclusively a problem faced by Black people, yeah. You wouldn't have been able to find the formations that they were able to find. You know, with the Young Patriots, they were able to build a coalition, not just on the shared experience of poverty, but also on the shared experience of police brutality. There's a video on, um, on YouTube called American Revolution 2. It's a film with Bobby Lee, 
-hmm. and he's organizing the young patriots and he asked them just talk about what are your experiences what is it you want to change about the world around you and when they start talking you realize that these are shared experiences because they're working class experiences Mm. you know of course they're colored and they're racialized of course but to remove the class aspect from it is to completely misunderstand the nature of that violence. And so we're so, told today it's all just because they hate us rather than because they stand to gain from dominating us. Sorry, I'll, I'll finish that. No, no, no. I was just about to say, it's essentially what you're saying, even though you said class first, but are we not essentially saying that we just consistently have to do both? There's mm-hmm. always class and race together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I always give the example... In the context in Southern Africa, for example, that I looked at, the emergence of like nationalism, Mm -hmm. the first struggles you see, which form a part of the emergence of a national identity or a shared black identity, Mm -hmm. are worker struggles, struggles on the railways against brutalizing conditions, hyper exploitation, worsened conditions than their white counterparts, right? Mm -hmm. And so, what you kind of have to understand is we don't. We aren't this like amorphous black blob and then white Europeans come over and dominate us and then we we rise up and whatever, kick them out. The yeah. reality is before colonization, we didn't really have a conceptualization or like before contact with Europe, we didn't have a conceptualization of ourselves as a collective unit yeah. or as a black unit. People were engaging based on cultural difference. There were other forms of otherization which existed on the continent. There was conquest, right? Yeah. And so our identity is forged through our class formation. Fennel makes the argument that in the colony, the base is the superstructure. You are mm. poor because you are black, right? Mm. You're black because you are poor. Before the uh, implementation of apartheid in South Africa in the 1930s, there's a Carnegie report that gets commissioned. And they're looking at the condition of poor whites. And literally the argument they make is, we have to ensure that the worst off white is better off than the best off black in order to maintain the integrity of these racial categorizations. There you see wow. that race and class are completely inseparable. They're one and the same, yeah. especially in the context of the colony. And people always forget that America is also a colony. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for real. Yeah. Again, thank, no, thank you for that. Thank you for that. So let's talk about, let's put that into practice now. We're speaking mm-hmm. about, okay, so two things I'm going to, we're going to go on this journey, but let's put it into practice. We spoke a lot about the theory. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a material analysis to blackness. So someone says in America, the example in which you gave, this person was shot because they were black. Hmm. This person was shot in the, this person, this black person was shot and killed in America because they were black. Does that give enough of, is that explanation? Does that give an account for why that violence is produced? No, it doesn't. Because, well, two things. The first slightly more simple and maybe more controversial statement is in being shot, that person is being blackened. Part of that violence is to reproduce and create the category of blackness. (laughs) But I think it's more important also to just get to the crux of it. We today have this abstract conception of blackness, right? Everyone who's descended from sub-Saharan Africa, right? Yeah. But here's the thing. If a South Asian person got shot because they looked black to a police officer, does that mean they haven't experienced anti-blackness? Right? So first and foremost, it's already incorrect because they're not shot because they're black. They're shot because they're perceived as black. Okay. Yep. And red as black. Yep. But then even beyond that, the fact that they find themselves in certain situations, which put them in the way of police, is entirely dictated in most instances by class. Yes. 
you know, someone uses a counterfeit note. You, you don't use a counterfeit note if you're if you're rich. Exactly. <laughs> right? Someone selling cigarettes, like Eric Garner selling cigarettes yeah. illegally on the sidewalk. You don't do that if you have enough money to eat and you don't need to feed a family. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the conditions we find ourselves in of perpetual unemployment, neglect, lack of access to state services, the need under capitalism to work in order to, to eat to find ways. And Huey theorizes this. He talks about the illegal capitalist, which is essentially the lumpen proletariat. Mm. And he says, well, these are people who are forced by the conditions of blackness in America into a perpetual antagonism with the carceral state. They have to do these things because no legal opportunities for them to make enough money to survive are provided to them. And that puts them in harm's way. That puts them in the way of the police. And so the, the question of being shot because you're black, if it was just because you're black, this, the cops would go out on every street and shoot all black people. We know for a fact that certain areas are over-policed, not just because of large population of black people, but also because of the association of poverty with crime. Yes. And the overemphasis that's placed on crimes such as theft and the the integrity of property over the sanctity of life. And so you can't have that analysis. When we do that, when we say, oh, he was shot because he was Black, what we do is hand over our claims to justice to a Black bourgeoisie who would do exactly the same thing if they were in that position. Why do we know that? Because you just have to take a cursory look at Africa. Look at Nigeria. (laughs) Do they shoot people in the street in Nigeria because they're Black? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's Black. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the black bourgeoisie quite a lot, and mm-hmm. then I remember people speak. I mean, I'm, I've long since abandoned this nonsense black nationalism. Thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. We moved. It's an admirable journey. <laughs> it's been eight months. I, I'm, Malcolm I'm took it too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> see, you see, I'm following in the footsteps of my idol. <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned the black bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. so. When we speak about blackness, then, is there anything that we have shared then with the people who are considered the petty bourgeoisie amongst black people? I mean, I would firstly say, I mean, I I know that people will quibble with me on this, but I would firstly say that there is like an established now black bourgeoisie, not just mm-hmm. a petty bourgeoisie, right? Okay, okay. But I would say Fanon makes the argument, I believe this is verbatim, he says there is nothing a priori to warrant the existence, the belief in the existence of a Negro people. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. That's from toward the African Revolution. And the point that he's making there is whenever we try to define or categorize what blackness is, we always fall short because Mm -hmm. it's not... It's not it's not created as a like discrete category and then disseminated amongst the people. It's created on an ad hoc basis to justify and facilitate the exploitation of people, right? Yeah. And so yeah, I mean there's a common misconception where people are like, well, he's a coon, he's an Uncle Tom, because he did this. Yeah. Right? But they don't realize that in many instances it is actively in their economic interests not to sell out, but to just go in opposition. They're not they don't share our interests. <laughs> You yeah. know, they're not the same as us. When the like black elite in Atlanta come out and say, Stop destroying our property, they're saying, You are not us. You yeah. know, they may make a claim to blackness the same way white people make claims to whiteness to try to make us feel like we're we share interests, to try to make mm-hmm. white people, like white working class people, feel a stake in empire. But the reality is they are telling us they are not us. We are not in community with them. There's black bourgeois, there's black petty bourgeois people out here buying prisons. 
For real? <laughs> you know, they're not our kin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, we see it. We see all the black Tories mm. <laughs> with, the, with the bad, with dead shape ups, but that's for another day. Always <laughs> yeah. have dead shape ups. That's dead shape ups, and they need to sleep with bonnet. <laughs> but if I talk, they will say, I'm why? Sorry. Okay. I always say, this is the thing. It's like, I, I made this comment earlier because the, the men have dead shape ups and then the aunties they just their frontals never have a, a parting, but that's a different story. No, but the thing yeah. is, see, your litmus test is <laughs> my litmus yeah. test is the shape up and the state of the hair. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I know if the politics will be politicking or not. That's I'm how I know. <laughs> Poor Marxists are fine. It's to be honest. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> It's a prerequisite. But okay, brilliant. So shifting gears then a little mm-hmm. bit now. We spoke about this briefly when we met. Oh, the state of the left mm. right now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the state of the left right now. I didn't know. At least, you know what the thing is? I can't lie. At least when I was like more with the neoliberal camp, at least I wasn't doing anything, but I felt like I was doing something. Mm. <laughs> with the left now, I feel like, oh, what, like, what, what should we be doing? Because when you're in the neoliberal camp, you can make money at least. I'm telling you. <laughs> it will be Facebook be calling you to tell white people why they're bad. Oh, screaming. <laughs> and, you, and you get 10 bags for it. I know. You get to shout in their faces and everything. Exactly. You feel real good afterwards. And for real, it's giving BDSM, but it's another day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So if I had the answers, honestly... I'll be doing it. Like yeah. people are like, oh well, who's the revolutionary like subject? Or like, mm-hmm. you know, how do we build a revolutionary organization? I'm like, if yeah. I had the answers, I would have been on those streets. Yeah. But I think that we're in a moment where, like, above all, what we need is a period of reflection. I graduated like what five years ago now. And I something was always drawing me back to this piece of research. Yeah. And the reason why is because I realized like things move at such a fast pace that we rely on shorthands. Mm. And people assume that when we speak the language we're speaking today, because it sounds like what they were speaking about last year and um, last century, we're talking mm-hmm. about the same things. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to understand how like these concepts quite be changed. Yes. While we all think that we're relying on the same language, right? And so I do think that there's a lot of thinking work to be done political education and by political education I don't mean like there's some smart people that need to teach everyone I mean we need to teach people to be able to identify their own conditions we need to teach people to be able to debate us and knowledgeably right it's it's not about like didact like I yeah because everyone has this image as someone pointed out to me like this is the moment in which like everyone is talking about political education but no political education that's actually being done yeah. yeah for real it's wild for real you know every other every other <laughs> every other like youtube channel whatever whatever is a political education space but no political education is being done mm-hmm. and i feel like the kind of political education we need is not just a recovery of these histories because people make the mistake they think oh well like if we just like re- replicate the same analysis that they had in the 60s the world we live in is very different Mm-hmm. like we need new stuff and I'm, I'm not doing that neoliberal thing we need new analyses we need new terms what i mean is like we need like we need to rethink we need to understand like when we lost yes the world changed yeah. the terrain we were fighting on changed very simple example of this 
project of COINTELPRO mm -hmm. in the late 20th century was so invasive precisely because in order to be able to surveil people, in many instances, they needed to be in the room. They needed access to your phone. They needed, you know what I mean? Yes. Today in the UK, you leave your house. If you go across London, they can probably find an uninterrupted chain of camera footage of you leaving yep. and like getting to where you are, right? We live in a world which is hyper-surveilled. Yep. How do we deal with that? How do we organize in those conditions when the state is ever more powerful than it has been historically, but also ever more embedded in people's minds? Everyone's a damn cop now in their head. <laughs> How do we confront those conditions? How do we build a project of abolition? How do we build an, an understanding of race? When today the rage is to talk about ethnic blackness as if that's a thing, right? To revive the categories of racial pseudo, like pseudo-racial science. Pseud mm -hmm. Racial pseudoscience, pseudoscience. My brain's gone funny. But you know what I mean? Like, yep. how do we confront the profound amount of misinformation that exists in the world today? I was just about to, thanks for mentioning misinformation. I was just about to say, you know how we've been raised up with, you know, so much. I mean, people have this list of, you know, Stalin, uh, Hitler, <laughs> Mao, all in the same mm -hmm. in the same breath. And that's obviously affected those who grew up in you know, went to school in the UK, particularly mm -hmm. black people who otherwise, I mean, they want to do some good, but then they, you know, you hear a lot of the time, oh my God, you lot are just trying to uh, hijack black, the black movement. You people on the left or you mm -hmm. Marxists, you know, we don't need that. How do we, what do you think it is? Or how do you think it is, how do we kind of organize against or mm -hmm. is it, what's the word, kind of sanitize or does, it, does legacies need sanitizing? Or as you said to me, left needs to come out swinging, but how do we come out swinging? Because we find that a lot of times like, oh, if I say certain buzzwords, it might trigger things and it's going to stop, you know, mm. people being convinced of the argument. Mm -hmm. I always say the controversial but like true thing that capitalism has killed more black people than socialism ever has. Mm -hmm. We're taught not to understand the violence of capitalism as violence, but the violence of starvation is violence. Yep. The violence which leads children to die in mines is violence. Exactly. You know, that's, that's, that's the nature of masculinity under white supremacy, right? Masculinity is not like all oh, these like hench, hench white men. It's the men in the, in the office who sign you, like sign you away to death and exploitation, okay. right? It's the colonial administrator, but mm -hmm. they pres present themselves as passive, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Capitalism and imperialism has absolutely devastated, underdeveloped the African continent. Capitalism will not save us. Yeah. We know that because they handed over from their colonial administrators to these corrupt politicians who are still yeah. providing them with avenues to pillage our, our land. You know, yeah. so that's the first thing. The second thing is that when people say like socialism, communism, Marxism is not for us, Marx was a dead white guy, Lenin was a dead white guy, mm -hmm. is the thing you are erasing the huge contribution we have made, not just contribution, like we built this shit. Like, this analysis, that's why I call myself a black Marxist, the most pivotal analyses, imperialism, transformations in like how we ought to struggle against imperialism in the 20th century are built by the global South. Yeah. This same global South had the power to bring the West to its fucking knees, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so like the idea that it's presented as something oppositional to our interests is very much a project of anti-communism. Mm-hmm. The West doesn't give a damn about free speech. What were, yeah, what were, right. like, what was the Red Scare? They don't give a damn exactly. about free speech. What's prevent? They don't give a damn. They don't give a damn about our safety. They slaughter us. 
they like come to our countries, drop bombs, and then when we try to flee over the Mediterranean, they leave people to die. Exactly. In the Mediterranean. The left is not a bastion of liberal values. Well, it's a bastion of liberal values. It's just liberal values are death, destruction, and exploitation. And Oof. so I, th- <laughs> I, th- I, think, <laughs> I think that it's always about combating those like first principle assumptions of the West mm. as this, like even down to the framing of the Cold War as a Cold War. It's not a Cold War. It's the exploitation. It's the exportation of violence outside of Europe into the global South. Yes. They fight proxy wars, but they don't have to give anything up. It's us who give our lives for it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, realizing that we're essentially being used as pawns. And when I say I'm a Marxist, right, that doesn't mean I have to stand up and defend every project which claims the mantle of Marxism in history. Exactly. I can just be like, that's not what I want. That's not what I want in the world. Yeah. I don't want a Marxism which requires a gulag. I don't want communism through the gulag. Yeah. I don't want it, right? Mm-hmm. I can understand and situate historically, right? But that's not that's not my horizon. My version of communism, my version of Marxism is geared towards freedom. You know, my analysis that divide is derived from Marxism understands that capitalism is fundamentally incapable of providing us with freedom, yeah. emancipation. And that's what I want. And so the communist world that I want to bring about is about freedom. And so like I think explaining some of these things to people, people are often I think surprised. Like they're surprised when they hear that, you know, Lenin, this big bad guy yeah. that like produced the Soviet Union, actually didn't really care much for states. They're surprised. Exactly. When they that, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So just like basic points of misinformation, people are allowed to be so glib about Marxism. Like they're allowed to be like, yeah, Marx just hates work and Marx just hates the employers. He hates the yeah. bosses and he just wants us to kill all the bosses. And I'm like, that's just not what Marxism is. That's just not what yeah. communism is. And so like giving some of that and a lot of these things, I remember reading a, a pamphlet a while back on, I think it's called like how to destroy the Illuminati. It's about the rise of conspiracy theories. Yeah. And they make the point that a lot of these people like in the sixties would have been in the Panthers. Mm. Like this is just a function of the absence of a strong pole of leftist politics in the West. And now we're left stuck calling social democracy in the form of Bernie Sanders revolutionary. Imagine. <laughs> Not you with yeah. the shade. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Again, you read my mind because I was just about to speak on these, you know, the Bernie Sanders, the AOC types. Mm. What is it? Why did it have such terrible takes when it comes to anti-imperialism? Like, what is it about being in the belly of the beast and having such like, I mean, you have people in that camp saying things like listen to the protesters when when we saw people to go to the streets in Cuba. Mm, mm. Do you know what? I think here's the thing. It's twofold. Mm-hmm. Threefold, actually. Firstly, like social democracy in the West has in, historically always been tied to a project of imperialism. Yeah. The Labour Party has never been an anti-imperialist party. It was a deviation under Corbyn. And the reason for that is, is that imperialism is a response to a series of crises for labor in in the West, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically in Europe. And so like the fix to that problem, the fix to the poverty and destitution experienced by white people in Europe is extracting resources from elsewhere. So the promise of social democracy has always been a promise, not just of redistribution within, of the wealth from the top to the bottom, but not to upset the, the same chain of exploitation which provides the wealthiest at the top with their money in the first place, which is imperialism. And so that's the first line. The second line is, 
also situating. I think that we are constructed in the context of this world to understand the life of, especially in America, the life of an American is more inherently valuable than anybody else's. Remember after the attacks in Kabul, where like, yeah. they're like 13 American soldiers. I killed. know. And then you 60 flipping Afghans died. Like, you know what I mean? It's, they genuinely just are incapable of seeing lives beyond those of Americans mm-hmm. as being like having, like, as having the same value, inherent value. And it's wild because we're talking about soldiers who were sent there to kill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus the lives of children and men and women who are like Afghan civilians. And so I think that, yeah, it's, there's a way that where we're situated, the propaganda of our nation state ties us in some kind of camaraderie to people who are from our country as well, which invisibilizes the violence that people experience in the global South. Most important mm-hmm. point, I think, though, is people assume that the reason, for example, in the UK context, that people hated Corbyn, that the ruling yeah. class did not want Corbyn to become prime minister, was because of his anti-austerity politic. Austerity was already dead in the water exactly. in 2015. The Conservatives were looking for an out. The reason why Corbyn was a threat is because Corbyn was anti-war. And war is huge business in yep. the States and in the UK. What happens during the so-called Arab Spring? They take arms dealers on a tour of the Middle East. You know, <laughs> you know, in, in the States, billions have been made by subcontractors. You know, they turn around now and they say, oh, well, charging six and a half grand to get people out of Afghanistan is like profiting from people's desperation. Well, what was the whole Afghan war? Like, what was the whole war on the Afghan people, if not profiting from the destitution of Afghans, right? Um, and so... I think there's a way that liberals get to position themselves as not as bad as certain kinds of violence, mm-hmm. right? Because like the ideal is we we don't want people to die, but we just have to be pragmatic. But if you look at the, the historical record, neoliberalism is a warmongering, fascistic politic. <laughs> like yeah. they are drivers of war because they profit from war. And so we always have to be very kind of clear about that. And even those on the social democratic wing, those who Mm -hmm. want to envisage a marginally less oppressive world, they have to understand the way in which their politic prioritizes the decrease in oppression for people within the imperial core, always at the expense of people in the global South, always at their expense. What does it mean to build a project of socialism within one nation? It means you rely on the same lines of extraction which built the nation in the first place. And but speaking about like the project or the experiments of socialism in the global south, mm. as someone or as leftists who want to be in solidarity with with those people, what do we when we see those governments undoubtedly make mistakes? Mm. How harsh should our criticism be of those governments? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think we live in a world, and I understand it, there's a defensiveness, there's a bunkerism, Mm -hmm. where people are like, you can't say anything. But let's start from the basic, like the basics. I will never advocate in my life for the UK or any Western country to intervene in, to bomb, to decimate, to put sanctions on any other country. Mm -hmm. I would never advocate for that position. And that's a basic socialist principle, right? Mm -hmm. Never be on the side of imperialists. Yeah. Now, 
obviously, once you actually deal with the question of what's happening on the ground, it becomes more complicated. People are faced with deeply complex questions, right? And we are not all experts on every country. And so what we rely on oftentimes or what people have historically relied on is just like, you know, work out who the good guys are, who are the socialists and back the socialists, right? Mm-hmm. But what you have to realize is like, we're not fighting for a single like revolutionary party, right? We're fighting for a liberation of the people. Yes. The revolution is not made by the party. The revolution is made by the people. Mm-hmm. And so I think... We should normalize firstly not speaking on things we don't know about. <laughs> In the 60s and 70s, they spoke so eloquently on Vietnam. Why? Not because they just felt like they understood Vietnam, it's because they learned about it, because there was a political yes. education, because they knew what the conditions on the ground were, because they were in touch with revolutionaries on the ground. Mm-hmm. Today, everybody needs to give a hot take because they want retweets. <laughs> Yep. I remember like whilst the protests were happening in Cuba, like people were making shady comments about people not talking about, it. you know what? I'm not gonna talk about it if I don't know, but I know damn well that end the blockade. Yep. You know, <laughs> I know damn well the US has no business being the moral police of the world. I know damn well that's a fact. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And then I think that like once we get to that point of departure where it's like, well, we from the West should not be the people who decide the fate of a revolution. Mm. The people of that country should decide the fate of a revolution, right? Mm -hmm. Then we free ourselves from the Eurocentrism, you know, and America-centrism of believing that the actions of the West should define the outcomes, political outcomes on people from across the world. Yeah. Right? We lapse into that every time we talk about intervention or non-intervention. Mm-hmm. From that point, we can have a critical eye. You know, you can't you can't tell me that I have to support repression because I'm a communist or I'm a Marxist, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. But once you situate it within the context of understanding that the biggest purveyors of violence in the world are the West, yeah. Once you situate it within the context of understanding the conditions which are leading, driving certain decisions to be made, mm-hmm. you always stand with the oppressed against the oppressor. And then when I say oppressed, I don't mean the like children of like <laughs> emigrants mm-hmm. <laughs> had mm-hmm. the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you always side with the actually oppressed, materially oppressed, right? Yeah, of course. Over oppressors, right? You always side with human freedom and you always side with the people. And mm-hmm. really and truly the debate and discussion that we have here in the West, if imperialism is not part of the question, then it's irrelevant. It's like it's not like it's gonna determine the outcome of a revolution. Okay. You know. And I think we have to also kind of reduce that pomp that we have in the West of assuming that what we say will determine the outcome. We extend solidarity where solidarity is necessary. Thank you. And th- finally, finally, I know <laughs> no no no, this has been an amazing conversation. This has been a lesson for me. But finally once again, the takes about Afghanistan. And we yeah. have what we call the feminists, yeah? The <laughs> feminists who speak about, and obviously I'm a man, so I'm very mindful of how I speak about these topics. Um, this is why I've got you. <laughs> no, no, but in all seriousness, you find like the conversation was like, oh, the Taliban is going to roll back so many decades work of women's emancipation. And mm. I thought to myself, what is with this flattening of of an identity politics or univi- univalization of like this kind of 
you know, the lens of like patriarchy <laughs> to the mm. Afghanistan context. I'm thinking it doesn't apply there because I'm sure if you look look at the the men that are the young men that are forced to fight on the young men who experience sexual violence in these places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I'm just trying to find it, but I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause for a second. There's an essay that Fanon wrote. I think it's mm-hmm. a, a dying colonialism. It's called mm-hmm. um, Algeria Unveiled. It's one of my favorites. Okay. In it, he, I mean, I don't think the, like, story of the veil applies in the same way to this context okay. when he talks about the, like, way that the, like, Ephelon used the veil and how women come to understand the veil as a symbol of emancipation because it facilitates the national struggle. That's, mm-hmm. like, beside the point. In this instance, what I'm interested in is, like, when he's talking about the sudden interest that white people and European feminist societies take in yeah. the liberation of Algerian women. Yeah. And it's never an altruistic project, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, the version that we're given is Muslim women are not liberated until we can see their tits. Literally. Like, and it's wild. And that's what's happening across Europe. It's like, you're not allowed to wear the back. You're not allowed to wear the belt. Look at the pictures and which they contrast. Oh my God. Yeah. Look at Afghanistan. And then like the women like wearing sh- skirts higher than their knees. And then mm-hmm. you've got, oh, look at them now. And they're all like dressed in like burkas and stuff. I'm just like, yeah. okay. <laughs> and? That is not to say that the version of Islam being propagated by the Taliban is not oppressive. It absolutely is. 100%. It's also oppressive to any Muslim man who does not adhere to their version of Islam. Exactly. And so what it's used to do is to not just situate the project of Western imperialism, which is dominating to both Muslim men and women, Mm-hmm. in the Afghan context as being a liberating force, right? We yeah. go in, in the words of Spivak, to save the brown woman from the brown man who's obviously a brute, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's also used to completely denigrate the sanctity of brown men's lives. Yep. You see people talking about stuff like, well, we need to save the women and children. Exactly. And it's like the women and girls specifically is the formulation that gets on the nerves, yep. right? Boys in Afghanistan are vulnerable exactly. <laughs> and they're deserving of love and protection and care, just like any other human being is. So know? where do you think that comes from, though? That kind of the lens in which they see everything through, you know, oh, it's only the women and the girls that are going to be, that are going to be subject to some kind of violence or dispossession. It's a lazy analysis of feminism. It's a lazy analysis which says, which positioned in every... So it starts from the position that says, like, Men do better than women. Yeah. Once you account for like race, right? So if all other things are equal, men do better than women. Yeah. And that is because in all cases, men are the source of gender depression within a community. Mm-hmm. Right? That's applied from like whiteness right the way through to blackness, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with this analysis is it presumes that black men are not also oppressing black boys not just because they're black, but specifically because they're black men, because there is no such thing as an unracialized gender, right? Yeah. The disciplining of black men into masculinity is a project that not only black men participate in, Mm. black women participate in that project too, broader white society participates in that project too, right? The presentation and stereotyping of black men as inherently violent is used as part of the basis. What did they say when they shot Mike Brown? When he shot Mike Brown, he said he 
I thought he was coming at me. He looked like he had superhuman strength. The presentation of black men as specifically violent beings mm-hmm. is part and parcel of the domination and oppression of black men. That doesn't mean yep. we can't talk about lateral forms of violence, right? Yeah. But we also have to understand that lateral forms of violence are not unidirectional, mm-hmm. right? Black men are not, black boys are not born violent. Mm-hmm. So as a community, we have to take responsibility for certain forms Ooh. of socialization. And there are ways in which black women are violent, not just to black men as well, but also to black other black to black girls, to other black women, right? Yeah. And so I know I took it to blackness, but I just wanted to use that to illustrate. No, but it's important. Point. Thank you. And I think that there's this lazy analysis of feminism as a woman, a class of women, in opposition to a class of men, right? Who yeah. does that serve? That only serves white women. Yeah. If you're going to have an analysis of gender which does not account for race, which does not account for class, it only serves bourgeois white women. Mm-hmm. And that's why people like Hillary Clinton are happy to pick it up and use it as an excuse to enrich themselves over the de- decimation of like black and brown families around the world through imperialism. Yeah, And it's wild to me because it's like, well, okay, these black, <laughs> these Afghan women are so oppressed. Let's go fucking bomb all of them in weddings and, 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 and funerals exactly you know it's wild it's like even as like a rash it just doesn't work as a logic it doesn't work i mean it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's depressing because it seems intuitive right it yeah. seems intuitive but the truth is always more nuanced than it originally presents itself to be masculinity is not only one thing men are not only one thing men are not inherently mm-hmm. evil men are not the only sources of patriarchy these are like very basic feminist principles which get thrown out of the window in service of a particular kind of white feminism and so when i hear people say that i'm just like okay so you're not interested in the liberation of humanity you don't care about people you care about people who look like you and that's dehumanizing mic drop on that note i'm going to (laughs) thank you so much i'm gonna get this in recording will you come on again in the future of course, of course, of course. Okay, good. <laughs> I will leave Annie's socials in the description of the episode. Please check her out. She's not, she hasn't been posting on Twitter as much these days. I think because outside is open now. So, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I seen her as, as active. Please do. Please support her work. She is, as I mean, as you can tell, this last 15 minutes, this has been a masterclass. So please like, comment, subscribe this episode. You're listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Until next time, peace out.